collect them. And we are, uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to start uh, in the second chapter of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to continue today in our uh, look throughout that gospel that we've started. Who's enjoyed it so far? It's been wonderful, hasn't it? So you will remember the, um, the story we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the first 12 verses uh, of chapter 2, and that's commonly referred to as uh, Jesus changing the water into wine. And uh, we're going to go right into it. It's chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted it and the water had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the, uh, the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brother and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. You may be seated. So Pastor Landon is uh, on a much-deserved um, uh, vacation. He and Pastor Tara, we do miss them. Um, and so he'll be able to spend kind of the Thanksgiving, the American Thanksgiving, um, at home. But I want to take just a few seconds and, and ask you guys, what are some of the traditions? What are some of the family um, things that you enjoy doing either, you know, during this Thanksgiving season or even in Christmas? Just anybody, just quickly. Family? Eating. I, I, I second that one. A taking a nap after turkey. That's a great tradition, right? That and or football. Yes, Football. I, I knew somebody's going to bring that one up. My family uh, grew up smoking a turkey. Howie's not here, but I know he would respect that. Um, we always, my father did it, and then it fell to my mom, and then eventually um, to me. I didn't do it for a few years, and my wife was, was sweet enough. She's got me a couple of different machines, and, and it really has added a lot of joy to, to us, to our season. Her family uh, fries their, their turkey, which is, which is really nice, too. But we need these types of things in our lives, don't we? We need these celebratory times. So for the next just moment, what I'd like for you to do is to, you can even close your eyes if you want to, but picture yourself in a few days. It's Thursday. It's, it's, it's turkey day. 
and the meal is prepared. The work has been done. You know, we get up early in the morning. We start the day before on the pies. We do all the work, and, uh, and you're there. Your spouse is there. Your children are there, maybe at the little kid's table. Your parents are even here. You brought your in-laws. It's the whole family. Warm feelings come. You're about to say the blessing. And, and this, this is what happens. Please roll the video. Catherine, this turkey tastes half as good as it looks. I think we're all in for a very big treat. <laughs> Save the neck for me, Clark. Okay, Eddie. Crying. Oh, I told you we put it in too early. Oh, it's just a little dry. It's fine. I told you. Wow, a major disaster. Can you imagine? So I want you to take that and I want you to multiply it about 10 times or maybe 100 times. And that's the situation that we run into in the second chapter of John. So I've got to admit something to you. Uh, you know, I was, grew up in the church and went to Bible college and the whole deal. And I always had a trouble, a little bit of trouble with this, with this story. It's, it's kind of an oddball story to me. Uh, now, bear with me. Nobody, nobody is raised from the dead. Nobody is healed. We don't have any lepers appear. There's no issues of blood. We don't, we don't even have anybody saved or filled with the Holy Spirit. For lack of a better word, it's not a very spiritual story at least on the surface, right? So my, my big question is why? Why is it here and why is it positioned? We know that everything in Scripture is there for reason. It's there for teaching, learning, right? And I'm so thankful that Pastor Landon gave me this opportunity because digging into it, I think I found the reason that it's there. You see, it sets the tone for everything else. See, John is a, actually a theologian. Uh, we learned in the last few weeks with Pastor Landon uh, some of the deep stuff that he's going into. And this story, being the first story, is positioned there to set the tone for Jesus' entire ministry. And we'll be we're going to look at that and look closer at that. It, it serves as almost a prologue. You remember in, in school what a prologue is. It gets you introduced to some of the characters. And it gets you introduced to uh, what kind of people they're going to be. So uh, if you're keeping score, if you're keeping notes, um, our first point is going to be that Jesus came to change our entire life. He came to change our entire life, not part of our life. I, um, if I'm like some of you, I tend to relegate him sometimes to the big things. If we're sick... You know, we need a touch from him. Something's going on in our lives. We turn to him. But sometimes it's easy in the good times to, to, to not give him the place of honor that he needs to be. We get carried away. Sometimes we think, well, I can handle. This is a small task. This is a small thing. And uh, as we see, we need him even in the small things. You see, this wedding was super important. Weddings in their culture 
were, were very, very important. And they're important in our culture. But again, even many times more so. Uh, of course, a union between a man and a woman. But the wedding ceremony itself would have ta- would uh, last for days and days and days. It's not just something that's an hour, a couple of hours. And um, sometimes even a week. The, the meal yeah, the, would have gone on. It would have been festivities and dancing, and the meal would have been central to it, and so would the wine. It's not so much that um, they would be drunken. In fact, we'll learn more about that. It would be actually fairly difficult to be, become drunk in that, in that setting. But uh, it, it was very looked down upon. But um, some, as the rabbis would say, without wine, there's no joy. It was intricate to their culture. We, we have cultures like this in certain parts of the world today, and, and it's just different than, than we kind of treat it. So after the uh, wedding, the, the, new, the, the married couple would be escorted and taken, actually carried up. You've maybe seen some Jewish weddings or some TV of that or something, and they're on a chair, and people carry them around town, and they don't go to the shortest point. From A to B, they they go the long way, the scenic route. They want as many people to see the happy new couple as possible, and, and everyone's wishing them happy, uh, happy occasion. Everybody is is kind of gloating over them. There'd be no honeymoon as we understand it, but they would be given a week off of work, off of everything, that they would go to their home, to their new home together, and there they would be treated with near royalty, treated very special. People would come in and wait on them hand and foot. They wouldn't have to do anything. They would continue to wear their kind of, uh, their dressy clothes, their, their wedding clothing that they had. They would even wear makeshift crowns and they could be called king and queen. Now this doesn't sound like much in our, our culture, but in a time where there was so much pain, there was so much poverty, uh, even extreme so, especially in the Jewish kind of community, this was the one time in the life of, of young people that, um, that they could feel kind of uh, joyous, happy, and that they didn't have to work and, 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 and be so uh, tired and stressed. You see, in a life where there was so much poverty, so much hardship, this one week of festivity and joy was special. So does Jesus want us to be happy? You know, a lot of times uh, Christians get the, get the kind of rap of wanting, uh, of being kind of killjoys. But is this how Jesus was? Uh, well, let's just look at some, some scriptures real quick. You don't have to turn there. Peter says, rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. That's 1 Peter 8. I love that. Joy unspeakable and full, full of glory. And to, the context is that, of that is knowing who Christ is, being a part of his kingdom, despite what's going on in the world. Later, uh, chapter 10 of John, which we'll get to in a few weeks, uh, he says, The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose, meaning Jesus, is to give uh, them a rich and satisfying life. I like that language, rich and satisfying. Again, we're not talking about physical wealth or monetary wealth. We're talking about love, joy, peace, what God gives. Matthew, in his gospel, says, For John, this is Jesus talking, 
to the Pharisees, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of the tax collectors. Obviously just religious people, right? Sometimes you can't, you can't please anyone. The point here is that Jesus wants us to have a full, abundant, and a joyful life. He doesn't want us to be down in the dumps, and he doesn't need to be depressed. Now, there's a difference here. You don't have to walk around with a fake smile. You don't have to try to put on. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the comfort of the Spirit. We're talking about knowing that regardless of what happens, the Lord has you, right? Even the worst case, we go home to be with him. So let's dig a little bit deeper into some of the particulars um, of, this, of this story. The barrels. The barrels held up to 180 gallons of water that would be turned into wine uh, as a, uh, for all of them combined. Jesus, in this story, didn't create just enough. He created an overabundance. Why is this important? Jesus isn't going to uh, just take care of us, just, just barely. He's not going to just leave us to um, the minimal. He's always going to take care of us over an abundance. And that's been um, the story of my life, and I'm sure it has been for many, many of you. He's created an overabundance. There was more wine after the miracle than they could ever drink. Uh, they could probably have most of the community over and not exhausted. So John was telling his gospel uh, uh, for Greeks. He, he, he had a couple of audiences. We know he had the Jews, but he also had the Greeks. And one thing that he, one challenge that he ran up to, into uh, teaching to the Greeks is that there is this uh, Gnostic type of idea that was going around. And a Gnostic, we don't really hear about the Gnostics a lot anymore, but their thinking is still around. They, they viewed this duality. They viewed um, there is um, things of the spirit, which were always good and okay. And then there were there was us, things of the world that were, were always bad. And so there was not much joining of the two, not a mixture. So they, they recognized God, but they said he was removed. He had nothing to do with us. He had no, nothing to do with man because uh, humanity is inherently evil. Everything in the physical world, something's wrong with. It's, it's fallen. And God can't have anything to do with that, so he doesn't really care. We still run into some of this uh, kind of bad theology today. Some people, they, they believe and subscribe to God or a creator, some type of higher being, but they say he created everything and just set the ball rolling and he went off and did something else. He's not available to us. Okay, so that, that type of thinking is still here. So it flew in the face of what we, and here's a new, another theological term, the incarnation or, or Jesus. We know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So this, this doesn't work with Jesus because Jesus is God and he's here. He took the ultimate step to become human so that he could be with us and so that he could empathize and provide for us. So they, they understood that Jesus was kind of a smaller God in their, in their idea, much more insignificant than the creator God, though. And, and not to be crude, but uh, they took this idea to such an extreme that they even taught that Jesus never 
went to the bathroom. He ate, but he didn't have to go to the bathroom because it was all a, a farce. It, it was all fake. You see, it was, it was acting. He never felt pain on the cross. He never sacrificed. He never empathized. How could he? Well, that's not the God we serve. So this Gnostic type of, of thought had kind of filtered down. And so this is one of the motivations that, uh, that John was going up against. So when, when the miracle happened, it's important to, to understand it didn't happen in the temple or even a synagogue. It didn't happen in the halls of government. It happened in a little country home for a young Jewish girl. And that should speak to all of us. When God starts something, it's not going to necessarily be in a great church hall. It's not going to be, we know it's not going to be halls of Congress. But, but it's going to be in our hearts and it's going to be in our homes. And that's still true today. In short, what we're trying to say here is don't worry. God has you. We serve a big God, don't we? I, I have a favorite song from one of my groups that I, that I just love, and the name of it's Big God. And it talks about, uh, right out of the book of Psalms, how he, he walks among the mountains, how he flung the stars into space, and how he, he holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. But he's also small enough to live in me. That kind of helps us understand. We serve a big God, but he's with us. So the writer's focus in this story is the sheer magnitude of extravagance of the miracle. It's in keeping with other stories that John is going to share with us later down the road. For instance, in John 12, we have, uh, or in John 6, we have the 12 baskets left over. That was when Jesus fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. But he didn't just... It would have been enough to feed 5,000 people plus women and children, right? But he went over and above, even over and above. Not only did he feed them, but his you know, uh, church tradition tells us the disciples, there's 12 of them, then had dinner, right? So he created over and above. The large fish... Um, after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, you'll remember the disciples kind of encountered him again, similar to the first time that they had met him. And uh, they were fishing, and he said to, to throw your, your nets out on the, on the side. So this is the second time it's happened. And, and, and some versions say 153 fish. That's just an idiom. It means it's too many to count. Over and above. And then, of course, it even lines up with the perfume that Mary uh, a different Mary poured over Jesus' feet. Extravagant. So we see that we don't serve a God that just barely supports us, just barely provides. He's, he, he provides over an abundance. And in short, I think Paul does a good job of, of conveying um, what I'm trying to say and what I think this, this story is about. In, uh, and it's in Ephesians Chapter 3, now to him who is able to do immensely more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
So that's the thrust of what we're going to today. That's, if you don't get anything else, that's what I hope that you understand, is that God is not a, God, a minimalistic God. He's a, he wants to maximize your life. doesn't mean we're always going to be wealthy, healthy, and wise, but we will have what we need, and we will have something far more important, and that's, that's relationship with him. But I don't want to leave you with just that. It, it doesn't do any good, of course, to just kind of give you the academics. I want to give you a couple of practical points that will help us to, to unlock this and to, to exercise our, uh, this in our life. And so a point two, this would be on the practical side. If we want Jesus in our whole life, we want to, to acknowledge that and have that, we uh, have to then have uh, Jesus. Uh, he requires faith in our whole life. So that's our first point. Faith is so important. It's, it's what unlocks everything else, right? What does scripture say? Faith is the substance of things that's unseen, right? Faith is the key to experiencing a move of God. Without faith, we're never going to see that. So does, again, I asked you earlier, does God occupy every part of our life or only the, only the big parts? He needs to occupy the small parts. Sometimes they're, they're, they're bigger in a way than the big parts because out of those small things, the big things come. A uh, few people in my life have had the influence that my mother had, um, and I credit her uh, as a big reason that um, I'm serving the Lord today. Um, and I remember one time, you know, she would pray all, constantly, all the time, praying about everything, praying about little things. She would even pray about getting a parking spot. Um, in, in the latter years, her back, she started having back trouble. And so it wasn't um, laziness so much. It was out of kind of necessity. You know, she had some, some difficulty getting around. But she would, we would always pray when, when, she, um, or when we lost something like our keys. And, and we found nine times out of ten, if we'll stop what we're doing, and we'll just say, you know, quick prayer and honor the Lord. You know, wisdom will come to us. We'll find the item. Or here's something. Instead of firing on off an email at work or giving a response like you would like to, I've had to stop and I've had to pray just a moment. And then, and then the Lord's, and, and then it works out much better that way. But apparently, uh, I remember my mom conveying this story many years ago. And... Um, she was listening to, to a televangelist, and I do think they get a bad rap. There are some good people out there preaching the gospel on the radio or television. But apparently this individual had, had gotten onto a little bit of this Gnostic thinking. And he was saying, you know, God doesn't care about the little things. He's not concerned about them. We need, you know, God saves people. God fills people with his spirit. God has big things to do. Don't, don't, don't try to bother God with your little stuff. And I remember, because it's very rare that she did this, she very... Uh, vocally just rebuked him right there. And he couldn't hear her. I wish he could have. He, she rebuked him because um, how foolish of a notion that is, right? How foolish. If, if my God cared so much to come down and put on humanity, then he's going to care about saving you if you have, if you have problems walking. If he, if he cared enough to come down, he's going to care about things that are that important to us. So let's do a quick review, okay? Who was here last week? I told you the teachers love pop quizzes, and I'm a teacher. Okay. So what, what was one of the points, any of the points, any point Pastor Landon gave? 
I'm going to give you a hint. It starts with an E. And, oh, thank you, David. I knew I could count on it. Endorsement. All these people are endorsing Jesus, right? Let's, I, I wrote it down. Um, John endorsed Jesus. Andrew endorses Jesus, which is also his brother. Um, Philip endorsed Jesus. Nathan endorsed Jesus as the Son of God. So, in verse 5 of of chapter 2, what we're looking at today, we have almost a continuation of that. Mary is endorsing Jesus. She endorses him by saying, uh, do whatever he tells you. You know, it's so fitting. Um, Who else, other than your mother, is there from, from the very beginning... And in in Jesus' case, to the very end, when he was on the cross. And sometimes, that's the only person that you have rooting for you. That's the only person who believes in you. Jesus had not begun his ministry. He had a couple of followers. But nobody really knew Jesus. And Mary is endorsing him. And she's there uh, kind of promoting his step into, his first step into public ministry. So let's, let's dig into this text a little bit. Mary's pronouncement uh, in verse 3, they have no more wine. I mean, it's kind of a flat statement. It kind of a, just a, it's just a statement. But it sounds almost like a parody of Jesus' own comment in the uh, Synaptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Just before feeding of the 4,000. Jesus says this. He says, they do not have anything to eat. That's it. Cut and dry. So you see, that story, it was a matter of salvation. In this story, it's a matter of public disgrace. Because remember how important it was, um, hospitality. It's not like southern hospitality or uh, even even, uh, hospitality here at church. It was a sacred duty. The closest thing we might have to it is... um, and unfortunately, it's kind of dying, is what we used to call patriotism, um, maybe during a war. It was kind of a duty of a young man to go fight for his country, to ensure freedom and democracy, right? And, and that would be the closest thing, but it was actually a, a code. And so this, if this had gone unchecked and we had not had wine to finish the wedding, this young couple would be setting out on their entire lives in disgrace, and people would forever remember it. So Jesus addressed to his mother. Who, who has always wondered about this? Woman, what, what have you to do with me? And I'm sure there's been some conversation of that. And some of these homes growing up, I'm sure there would have been some repercussions if you talked like that to your mother. But I'm here to tell you it's a good thing because in their culture... It's, it's more of an idiom. It's more of a phrase that doesn't translate well. Some of the newer versions do a little bit better of adding to it so we can understand it. Um, but the word woman there, it would be more uh, attuned to lady. Or, or even in the South, we might say ma'am. We see the same language as proof in John 19, 26. Same author. And it's, this is when Jesus was on the cross, and, and it was almost over. Uh, but he says, one of the last things he says is, When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, which was 
the author of this. I like the, how he talks about himself in the third person. But, um, but standing there beside the one he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, and the dear, of course, has been added in English, here is your son. So uh, there he is providing for her. Again, showing that he, he cares, and he cares about his mother deeply. So it, it's, not, it's not as harsh as we kind of feel like it does. But let's look at this verse 4, the phrase, why do you involve me? Again, that sounds kind of, kind of odd, isn't it? But again, it's more of an idiom. It's more of a phrase that they would understand in their culture and in their language, and it doesn't translate the best. Um, and it means this. This is an interpretation, so to speak, of a commentary. Um, don't worry. You don't quite understand what's going on. Leave things to me. And I will settle them in my own way. Jesus was simply telling Mary, his mother, to leave things to him and that he would have his own way of dealing with the situation. And it's just a little thing. So, you know, sometimes things are so big to us and when we take them to the Lord and he does want us to, to seek him and he does want us to give his cares to him. But it's surely great to know that when we do, I think a lot of times the response we're going to get is, don't worry, I've already got it. You see, this is only a little thing, just a little thing. So let's move on to, to, to our last point today. And again, it's a practical application. If you want God to be part of your whole life, which he wants to be a part of your whole life, you have to have faith. You have to give, have faith in, your, in all aspects of your life for him. And then, and then lastly, we have to be obedient. And that needs to be in our whole life as well. And, and this one can sometimes be a more difficult one. You see, obedience is the key to experiencing a move of God. Let's look at some scriptures real quick. 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of lambs or rams. James, who we remember as Jesus' brother, uh, says this in chapter 2. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you have faith but don't show by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye or have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, by faith itself isn't enough, unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So James is saying that if you, if you love God and you have faith, the works are going to follow. I, I want to be very clear. We're not talking about work salvation. Our labor... What we do for him does not save us, and it doesn't even impress him. But what it does is it allows him to see our heart, right? You probably have children or you have loved ones. They're in a, in a healthy relationship. 
their behavior doesn't affect your love. Someone can be misbehaving and you love them deeply. But when, you're, when your children obey you, that's a demonstration of how much they love you back, right? So what about signs and works? So we're talking about works here, which is really just obedience. You see, in the sec, uh, second to last verse uh, of our text here, it, it talks about Jesus moving on from there. And this was the first of his signs, right? So this was a sign. What was a sign? It was a sign that the, the kingdom had come. The Messiah was here. The new kingdom had, had, had arisen. And this is to be the model for us, too. We maybe not do miracles, but our works will be our signs. I remember a few years ago, there were a series of revivals that were going on in different places. And a lot of people uh, were going to see them in the church. And um, it's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Anything that helps you draw closer to the Lord. And, uh, but I remember at the time, our pastor said very strongly uh, he said, just make sure that you're not following the signs, but the signs are following you. That's what the kingdom is about. It's fine to be in, in relationship with others. It's good to be in, in great services. And we are Pentecostal and we love to get excited. But when it comes down to it, we don't need to be searching for another thrill. We have ultimately what we need. We have the Lord. We have the spirit. And so our works will be our signs and they need to follow us. So God will cause you to do some, some crazy things. God will cause you to do um, things out of the ordinary or out of your comfort zone. And this happens to all of us. Let's just look at a quick survey of some of the Old Testament prophets to see some of the bizarre or crazy things that some of them did. Some of you know what we're about to talk about here. Um, Ezekiel ate from a bird. 1 Kings 17. Elisha made an axe head float, 2 Kings 6. Ezekiel laid on his side for more than a year, 390 days to be exact. Daniel, of course, stopped eating good food, Daniel 1. Um, the same pastor that I was speaking about, I remember he encouraged us when Noah was, uh, before he was born, uh, not just us as a, as a couple, but the entire congregation, to, to pick biblical names when you name your children. Give them a godly heritage. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't go to whatever's in vogue and cool at the time. Pick something in Scripture, and you can teach them about it. And so, you know, of course, we did with Noah. And I, and I noticed, David, that you did the same with, um, with Elijah, right? But... Um, Couple of names, did you, David? Did you did you consider these names? Hosea named his children unloved and not my people. We those names didn't come across in the baby book. I'm going to name my child unloved because God told me to. But God will tell you to do some crazy things, okay? But just be very certain He's telling you to do that before you do that one. But He will. And what is it? It's an out an outward sign. Of, of your faith. And that's all water baptism is. Water baptism, of course, we know it doesn't save you. It doesn't necessarily bring you any closer to the Lord. What it is, is it's a public display of obedience. So let's look real quick at these water jars and, and what do they mean. 
But the water jars were for ceremonial bathing. And so the Jews had very strict orders about how to wash their hands and wash their feet. We know that on the dirt roads on a dry day, they'd become sandy and could crack. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a rainy day, it'd be muddy and filthy. And so they had these Jewish laws where they would need the, the water jars and, and they would fill them up. But Jesus said to use the water jars. Have you ever thought about this? To fill up the wine jars, then to go and serve the people. Didn't make any sense. Why didn't he just fill up the wine jars? And why did he make the people go work and do all of this stuff? He could have just created the wine in, in, in the jar, right? Why did he make people do this? Because he always partners with people. God doesn't do anything outside of his partnership with us. He puts the burden, or he puts not the burden, but he puts the, the, the work on, with us. He joins with us to do it. But with those water jars, we have to think about something, too. I mean, and, and it, was, it was bizarre for their time, because think about this. Think about if you're having, you know, again, your Thanksgiving meal Thursday, and you run, you run out of sweet tea. And that's a no-no in the South. But you do it, and your mother-in-law's here. So you say a quick prayer, and God tells you not to, fill up, not, not, not to look in the picture. It's going to be full. But God says, the tea is going to appear in the bathtub. That's kind of nasty. But that's the way he did things. Kind of not our way. So he, he filled the, 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 had them fill the jars for the ceremonial cleansing with the wine. That probably made him think twice. The other thing is, though, when you think about it, those jars weren't necessary anymore, were they? We don't need to abide by the law. The ceremonial jars have, have filled their purpose. We can put them away. We can give them a new purpose. Jesus is here, and we don't need them anymore. The other, the other aspect is that he, um, he told them to fill them to the top, right? Fill them to the brim, depending on what version you have. Fill them all the way to the top, overflowing even with water. Why would this be? Now, some of you are like this, um, that are concerned about the alcohol and all of this. You see, their wine was a lot different than our wine. Our, I think our wine, last time I looked for this, it was like 9 or 12%. Their wine would be a more concentrated form when it was first created, of course. And then it, the, the way to make drinkable wine would be to mix it with two-thirds water. So you have two-thirds of a container of water, and you put one-third of the weight to finish it out, and that would make your drinkable wine. Now, looking back at it from our perspective, how, how great this was, because in this first century world, the most dangerous thing you could do would be drink water. If they had no uh, science. They had no way of knowing about microbi microbials and germs and all this thing. So that's how disease was spread. But that small amount of alcohol, 1% or 2%, killed everything. And this is why so many they drank this, because they wouldn't get sick. But by where Scripture says to fill up full, then there's no room for error. There's no room to think, well, yeah, he filled the jars two-thirds of the way up, and he just forgot to write in that the wine was then delivered by a horse or something or a camel, and they filled, filled it up, and that made the drinkable wine. No, there's no, no room for that here. This is a bona fide miracle. So there were six vessels, weren't there? There were six containers. And what does that have to do with anything? 
because, as I said, while the book was written to primarily a Greek audience, it was also written to a Jewish audience. It was written to both. You see, six is the number of incompletion or imperfection. And so Jesus took something that was incomplete, not perfect, and he created the, the perfect from it. And this is a picture of what he does for us. So we see in this story, it's not even really about wine. It's not about water. It's about what he's done for us. He's taken the imperfect and he's created the perfect, not because of our actions. Remember, a biblical perfection or a biblical thought of um, righteousness is not our own works. It's taking on his. Uh, the other aspect is... that um, the Greeks, again, had their culture, and uh, they actually had stories similar to this throughout their history, that their gods would um, make wine from water. The problem is it never happened. It was, it was a myth. It was a legend, right? And so seeing the complete um, message within this story, he's saying to the Jews, I'm here to complete you. I'm here to do what the Old Testament, uh, the Old covenant was the law was not able to do for you and to the greek he's saying i am here to fulfill what your dreams never could fulfill what your gods could never fulfill so we're going to look at um we're going to look at one more video and then we're going to dismiss um and I'll tell you, it's the chosen, and it's, it's the one that uh, talks about this, this, this story. And um, as they're narrating, as they're talking within it, the, the context is going to be that Jesus is about to do this thing. He's about to do this miracle. And when he does it, um, it's going to start a series of events. He's talking about stone cutting, but they're paralleling up Jesus' life. And I want you to think about that. But I also want you to think about your life. And as you accept Christ as your, part of your whole life, and as you accept him with faith, and as you move out and you obey him, that it's going to start a chain reaction. And it's going to start a series of events that, that we're going to have to, to go through to follow him. I'm going to play that. step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas. that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a 
shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same. some out and serve it to the master of the banquet. going to be a time in your life when God comes to you and he, he asks you to do something. And it's going to sound weird and it's going to sound odd. But I encourage you to take that step because with that, we'll start the series of events that will have him permeate every part of your life. So to the Jews, John said, Jesus has come to turn the imperfection of the law into the perfection of grace. To the Greeks, he said, Jesus has come really and truly to do the things you only dream the gods could do. See, when John wrote this story, he's saying to us, if you want new exhilaration, become a follower of Christ. There will come a chance in your life, a change in your life, which will be like turning the water into wine. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this occasion. Thank you for these people. And I ask you, Lord, to help each and every one of them this week to incorporate you and to keep you alive and active in the little things as well as the big things. I ask that you give them strength to have faith they follow you and obedience to help make you part of their whole life as it's for me as well. In your great name we pray. Amen. You'll sit.